0: Welcome to All the Things with Monique Duson from
1: the Center for Biblical Unity and Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique.
2: Hello, hello. Welcome to Saturday. Well, I guess y'all been in Saturday, but you know, welcome to Saturday with us. This is All the Things, and I am Monique Dusan. I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. And this is the show where we talk about all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. Now, see, I was going to say, and together we are the shenanigan makers. <laughs> That's, I got thrown off. We do have shenanigans. We do. Well, I wonder what
3: the technical definition of shenanigan is. Antics.
2: Antics. Yes. Is that what it is that we do? We have antics. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, helping us
3: tonight on the show and every night drinking from his Impact 360 cup, the one and only Bob Bontrager.
2: There it is. Yes, yes. And um, our moderators tonight are the one and only Miss Laura Hartley and Emily Bontrager. From the living room. Yes. <laughs> right there. And we
3: are live, so we do want to invite you to add your voice to uh, the conversation. This is the show where we actually read the comments in the live stream and interact with them and try to fold them into the discussion Um we want to invite you also to participate in the show by uh, liking the show, sharing the show. Make sure to just, the easy thing, hit that thumbs up. That helps people um, find the show in your feed and helps alert new people. That's really like the number one way that people find the ministry is someone shares
2: the show. I say if y'all want to participate with your inner petty, send it to an enemy. Like send it to somebody <laughs> who don't like you. <laughs> Somebody who completely disagrees with you. Participate with your inner petty. Yes. Now I tonight am wearing a show a shirt that says, The devil is a lie. If y'all know me, y'all know that this is this is the shirt for me. Um and it was sent to me. We both have one. I should have worn mine. We have matching shirts. Yeah. From um our volunteer Stephanie. So thank you yeah, very much. She got it like off Etsy or something. Yeah.
3: So um and uh, you can sup- help support the show by um, we checking are- out. I'm sorry, I'm like thinking about four things at once. Um, Girl, bring it back. So. Yeah, I know. Uh, Family Two Ten Clothing. That's what we're going to. <laughs> let me let me help her
2: out. Yeah. This show, tonight's show, every show is sponsored by Family Two Ten Clothing, the Center for Biblical Unity, and the Theology Mom Podcast. Awesome.
3: So go check out our family uh, designs there. This one is Speak Truth to Error. It's one of our favorites. Uh, Famous saying by Monique. This one is one that I designed, Created to Rain. Uh, So go check that out. $10 of every purchase goes to either help the ministry or help our family, depending on which uh, design that you select. So what have you been up to? Uh, well, today I went and
2: got my squirrels tamed, as I say. Oh, oh we're doing that? I'm, I'm just going to put it out there. We're letting people Okay, was, men,
3: was... you can tune out right no, now.
2: No, <laughs> do not tune out, men. Because if you don't know that your wife's going to get their eyebrows done, then that's just the reality. I had to go get my eyebrows done. But I call them squirrels because sometimes they just run across my face like wild rodents. I had to go get They them. look good, though. Whoever your girl was today did a really good job. Well, see, what had happened was I hadn't been in a while. And she, like, had to put her foot up on the chair and, like, yank it. I was like, whoo, she said, ma'am, I'm going to need you to come back regularly. (laughs) Anyway, let's get started. Aren't you going to ask me what I'm doing? No, I wasn't going to, but okay, what what were you doing? I wasn't, actually. Go ahead. Equity. Equity. You know what? I'm not even going to start on the race (laughs) conversation because we have people waiting for us.
3: Okay. Yeah. All right. I got a haircut. You did. Yeah. It's you not did. so
2: pushy anymore. you so cute. <laughs> you so, so funny. Crazy. Okay, people, we are right. sorry. This is... Well, let us bring things back. Okay. Um, I'm excited about this show because, gosh, we are talking about pro-life and being yeah. pro-life and answering um, the questions that come up in regards to, to pro-life issues. Yeah. How do we do that? And I remember... Um, and I know you have a whole setup. Like I'm not going off script. I know you're just I'm not going off script because I can <laughs> see the stress in your face. Um, but I, I, and you guys should know my story by now. I was completely pro life, pro um, choice. Pro choice. I'm sorry. I was completely pro choice, and um, you know I've had many conversations with friends and things like that who have held the pro life view. But I've also had very you know Christian friends. I've had pastors who have upheld the pro life view, and I mean, the pro-choice view, I'm sorry, just, you know, coming at the conversation from this position of, well, God gives us choice. So who are we to take away someone's yeah. choice?
3: I mean, your your argument when you first came to to live with us, I, I remember vividly we we're sitting over here on the couch uh, and you said, well, of course, I'm pro-choice because Joshua won eight. It says,
2: one night. One night. Yeah, it says, choose no, you this that's day. Strong and courageous.
3: Choose you this day who you will serve. He said, so God likes choice, so therefore I'm pro choice. I thought, this is the most peculiar argument I've ever heard, but I was trying to keep a straight face. You did
2: not keep a straight face. You, <laughs> you're lying. Like, Let's I be honest. I don't you, know. She what did this... not keep a straight face. She blew up and then she cried. And I was like, <laughs> and I was still in my CRT day. so I was like, white tears. Like, yeah. yeah I, it, it was, was a it rough it conversation. Was, yeah,
3: because I was so caught off guard. Like, wait, what? You graduated from Biola. How could you? possibly have have these views. So anyways, it's been an interesting journey if people go back
2: in the archives of the show, they might notice that it took us a minute. Well, we never talked about pro-life pro-choice issues because even though I had walked out of the critical social theories and critical race theory framework, I still grappled and wrestled with what I believed in regards to viability, abortion, Um, a woman's rights and all of that. And so, no, we never talked about those things in the beginning. In the beginning. Um, I think the
3: first show we did was probably the one with Uju and um, the African mm -hmm. um, advocate. Yeah. And uh, that was kind of a step forward.
2: That was a definite step forward. And I still even struggle with that. Joke. Yeah. But I'm yeah. just, I'm excited because, and I invited, like on Facebook, I invited friends to join this conversation so that they can have some of their questions answered. Yeah. Because, you know, I realized that I was in a huge error. Um, and, you know, repentance and all of that. But it's like, how do you now articulate this? Yeah. How do you, you know, fight for this? But go ahead.
3: So this is the third show that we've done since the Roe decision. Yeah. And um, the the idea for this particular show kind of came to me um, because we had a commenter who came on Instagram and wanted to help you understand the biblical case for abortion. They really wanted to have a phone call with you about she it. Did.
2: And I thought, oh, that's an interesting idea for a show. So, But I'm not that holy. So I had to, de- I never, I usually don't <laughs> decline show like a conversation. If somebody says, hey, can we talk about this on the phone? I'll normally say, sure, let's go ahead. I am not that holy. I, <laughs> now my position is very, very strongly pro-life. Yeah. And I was like, I, I just, I don't know that that conversation would end well. Yeah. So
3: um, I think uh, this will be a great follow-up to the shows that we've done. Uh, we did one with Katie Faust. We did a show with um, our friend, Dr. Chris, uh, who's an OBGYN, a pro-life OBGYN. So today we kind of have a living legend on on the show, uh, Dr. Scott Klusendorf. Graciously, I, I, you know what? I was blown away that he even knew who we were. Like, I'm like, no way Scott Klusendorf knows who we are. Like, we're just sitting in here in our living room.
2: Yeah. But (laughs) do you remember? I think it was, it was a while ago when you, um, wanted to have dr scott on yeah and you were like we need to have dr scott on and i was like "Who? who's he (laughs) but now we've had a conversation i'm like
3: yes yes so we are excited to bring on the um pioneer in this field in really crafting a lot of the pro-life arguments that we take for granted these days um dr scott klusendorf welcome to the show
1: shenanigans reign in sarcasm (laughs) rules. Yes, it is. in my love language. Welcome home. One thing, I'm actually not a doctor. My highest degree of education is a master's degree. So just to be clear to your audience, I don't want to mislead them that I have credentials that I actually don't.
3: I understand that that happens to me too. Occasionally. So it don't happen
1: yeah. to
2: me. I'm just going to go ahead and, put it
1: and no, ain't nobody been mistaken me but, <laughs> don't happen eventually. Don't, don't worry. Those shenanigans will, will follow you.
3: <laughs> I hope so. Well, why don't you give us uh, kind of the one minute introduction to the three people watching that don't know who you are um, and how you got interested in the pro-life conversation.
1: Well, I had always been pro-life, uh, Krista, from the time I'd first heard about abortion back in 1980 at a second chapter of Axe Concert, a Christian music band that was one of the pioneers in the mm-hmm. gospel rock genre. And they spoke about abortion and my heart was gripped at the evil of it. But honestly, not a lot happened between there and an event that took place in November of 1990 when I was invited nearly a decade after that second chapter of Acts concert to visit a pastors gathering where the topic was going to be abortion. And there was supposed to be a hundred other pastors there. It ended up being me, four other pastors and their wives, Uh, Mm -hmm. nowhere near a hundred people when the topic was abortion. They all stayed home. But thankfully the speaker, Greg Cunningham, who was a former member of the Reagan Justice Department and a member of the Pennsylvania House where he had written bills that cut off tax funding for abortion. He spoke and thankfully, he was not bothered by the small crowd. And he laid out a case for the pro-life view that I thought, man, this is great. He doesn't hurt the brain to listen to because I had heard pro-lifers who quite frankly were painful to listen to. Their arguments were vacuous. They were very weak and very subjective. And I wanted much more, I was pro-life, but I needed more to be spurred on to action. Well, he certainly delivered the arguments, but then he did something that radically changed the direction of my life to where I'm at today. He showed an eight minute video depicting abortion. I had never seen abortion. And I sat there and wept and thought, I am no different than the priest and the Levite who pass by on the other side of the road. They say they care about injustice, but they don't act like they care about injustice. And Jesus says, biblical love has got to do better than that. And that day, I went home on November uh, 16th, I think it was of 1990. And I showed that VHS tape to my wife. VHS tapes were these rectangular gizmos that had movies on them for any of you that don't know. And I showed that video to uh, my wife and she said, hey, I'm with you, whatever, I'm, I'm along for the ride with you. And six months later, with the blessing of my church, I had resigned my associate pastor's position to begin the process of equipping pro-lifers to make a case for what they believe. So that's my genesis. And now today, uh, I am the president of Life Training Institute, where we equip Christians to make a case for life in the secular marketplace of ideas.
2: Wow, that's That's amazing. I I hear you when when you say like, you know, there are your argument doesn't really like all the way line up. It doesn't make sense. It's vacuous. Like I hear I hear what you're saying and have had those conversations that honestly didn't move me. But then right. you said that, you know, this pastor laid out this case for life. So can you lay out for us the, the case for life? And, um, you know, what are the fundamentals that every Christian should be informed on or every yeah Christian should be yeah informed by if they're going to present the case for life?
1: Well, you're spot on, Monique, because the three most important words in pro-life apologetics are syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. Uh, Now, for any who don't know what a syllogism is, it is two premises followed by a conclusion. And hopefully that conclusion follows logically. Uh, The pro-life syllogism or argument goes like this. Premise one, it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, conclusion, abortion is wrong. It's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Abortion does that. Therefore, it's wrong. Now, pro-lifers defend that syllogism with science and philosophy. We argue from science that from the earliest stages of development, from the one cell stage, Monique and Krista, you were both distinct, living, whole human beings. You weren't part of another human being, like skin cells on the back of my hand. You were already whole living members of the human family, even though you had yet to grow and mature. And there was no essential difference, to argue philosophically, between you, that embryo, and you, the adults that you are today, that would justify killing you back then. Differences of size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency, which we'll return to later, are not good reasons for saying we could intentionally kill you then, but not now. Now, that one-minute defense I just gave you with a pro-life view, can be defeated one of three ways, and only one of three ways. First, you can show that the conclusion does not follow logically from the premises, meaning the argument is invalid, its structure is bad. Or you can show that one or more of the premises are unsound, untrue, meaning the argument fails the soundness test. Or you can show that the terms are used in an unclear manner. Outside of that, That argument stands. The problem is that when it comes to addressing the actual pro-life argument, almost everybody changes the subject. And we cannot, as pro-lifers, let that happen. We've got to stick to our syllogism like glue. That's why I said the three most important words are syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. By doing that, you bring people back to the fundamental case that we're arguing And you don't allow them to change the topic.
3: That's really good because um, I want to encourage everyone, even if you have to to, you know, come back to this at some point, you know, rewind it, write it down, memorize it, because you never know when you're going to be put on the spot. In fact, we have a short clip here of a Christian who was put on the spot in front of 11 million viewers And you're going to notice that what his response is sounds awfully familiar. We're going to see Seth Dillon, who is from the Babylon Bee, on the Joe Rogan show uh, recently. And I'm going to have Bob play some highlights um, from that exchange. And we're going to play it all the way to the end because um, I think Joe Rogan's shift um, by the end of the conversation is kind of interesting. So Mm -hmm. let's check that out.
0: You don't have the right to tell my 14-year-old daughter she has to carry her rapist baby. You yeah, understand to that? To look
4: that woman in the eye who's who was the but born listen, of a rape. do You
0: understand that? That's a 14-year-old child. I if know. you a 14-year-old child gets raped, you say that they have to carry that baby? I don't think two wrongs
4: make a right. I don't think that's murder not, I, I don't, don't think, think murder is an answer to I don't think murder fixes a rape.
0: What if we're talking about an abortion when the fetus like literally it's like 6 weeks, 4 weeks, 3 days? What if she just turned positive just now? Positive for pregnancy.
4: I don't. I, well, I just disagree that. What if can, it just happened today? you can like draw a line on when like, Once life is so begun, do, I don't think you can at the draw very lines. moment. I would lay it out like this. I would say, it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human life. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human life. Therefore, abortion is wrong. And I don't think any of the. I don't think any of the examples of like oh well how developed is it you know can it can it think is it conscious can it dream can it feel pain So for you it's the moment of conception I think that if it's a if it's a human life an indi- a distinct human life then I think it's wrong to to end its life um, and So you think that even, once
0: do you think that the, like once the conception happens there's some sort of a miraculous event like at the very moment like you could literally get to the point where the sperm cracks the egg if you could scoop that egg out right there would that be abortion
4: well, I mean, at some point, you're going to have to say there was a magic moment that happened because you believe that we eventually become valuable humans, right?
0: Well, listen, where, where's I... the
4: where's the moment where you think the magic happened me... when we start talking about harmful misinformation and the, t- the types of things that are considered like that I say or that we tweet or the jokes that we make, that are considered harmful mis- misinformation. I'm like, well, what about what about calling that baby a clump of cells? I think that's harmful misinformation because then you're, you're encouraging people to kill it like it's nothing when it's actually a human life. It's a developing human life. I think abortion is health care the way that rape is lovemaking. If we want to, if we want to use rape as an example, I think it's, I think they're, they're opposites, and 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 it's like a, a, these are euphemisms that we use. You know, we use the word healthcare. We're talking about a procedure that ends an innocent human life, and we're calling it healthcare. That's like calling rape lovemaking.
0: And this know. is why it's such a human issue because I right. see what you're saying. Life is valuable. Like yes, and people have almost were the victims of abortion, and they weren't they they went on to become these amazing people and we right. would have
4: lost them sometimes it's a failed abortion like there's people who have survived like a saline abortion and they oh, and Jesus. they're damaged as a result of it but they but they lived and now they're born they usually go on ironically enough to become pro-life uh, activists
0: oh well that's crazy
4: yeah that's wild but it
0: makes sense i mean if that's what made you yeah wouldn't you be a pro-life activist probably wouldn't be
3: okay so, again, that was um, Seth Dillon from the Babylon yeah. Bee. Um I don't know, Scott, uh, do you have any thoughts about the the exchange and what you what did you see there?
1: Well, first of all, Joe Rogan needs to give up the vape. If he wants to look credible, he needs to smoke a cigar, do something genuine. I mean, what's this vape stuff he's pulling off here? But that aside, uh, you know, you said this was a show of shenanigans, so I'm going to give it, you it, some, all right, you ladies? I'm not gonna, Bring the shenanigans. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to disappoint you. Um, I thought Seth did a terrific job on that interview, the whole thing, he did very well. Notice how he framed the issue around a syllogism and he kept bringing it back to, is this a good reason for intentionally killing an innocent human being? And that's what forced Joe Rogan, I think, to start to shift. You could see the visible shift in the way he was responding. And when Seth said to him, okay, look, everybody's drawing a line. And what, what what Rogan was trying to do is reduce this to the religious or the mystical or the magical. No, it's science. From the earliest stages of development, the unborn are distinct living and whole human beings. If he wants to refute Seth, he has to refute the syllogism, has to refute the science. Instead, he just tried to push it to being something beyond the realm of rational inquiry—that somehow we have to just punt to mysticism here. Uh, no, we don't. And Seth did a real good job pulling it back to what's the real issue.
2: Yeah, I um gosh, it makes me think of um, the, the camp. I was at a camp recently where um, some of the people there were strongly um, advocating for abortion, and um you know one of the the arguments was, well, people are too poor. To, you know, bring their babies to term. And so we not knowing that this was actually, you know, the syllogism or the way to do it or things like that, the my partner um, who I was with was, you know, he brought up the fact that we don't kill innocent lives simply
1: because they're poor. Right. And notice, no, their, yeah. Yeah, notice their argument assumes the unborn are not human. Would anybody suggest killing two-year-olds because the checkbook doesn't balance at the end of the month? No. They only advocate killing unborn humans because they're assuming the unborn aren't human. They're begging the question, meaning assuming the very thing they're trying to prove. Uh, look, har- hardship doesn't justify homicide. When human beings get expensive, we don't get to kill them. The argument only floats if you begin with the question-begging assumption that the unborn are not human, but the entire abortion debate turns on the question, what is the unborn? Hence, they're simply assuming what they're trying to prove.
3: Wow. I want to go back to um, Seth's kind of side comment about the magic moment, you know, because I think in my experience with pro-choice people, this is, this is an effective tactic that I've used. And, and Monique and I had this conversation, which was, well, okay. If you're going to say the unborn is not a human person, at what point do they become a human person? At what mm. point do they become valuable? Is it some magical thing that happens when they come out the birth canal? Is it some other, um, moment? So I, like walk people through the sled argument that you mentioned earlier, because I think that helps to begin to to break down that issue.
1: Well, the purpose of the sled argument is to show that although there are differences between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, those differences are not morally relevant in a way that would justify intentionally killing you back then as an embryo. So there's a difference of size, there's your S in the SLED acronym, you were smaller as an embryo, but since when does body size determine value? Shaquille O'Neal, the former Los Angeles Lakers basketball star, is a foot taller than nearly everyone hearing this broadcast right now. But it doesn't follow that he's more human and valuable simply because he's bigger. Body size doesn't bestow value. L, there's, that stands for level of development. Sure, you were less developed as an embryo. And again, our response here should be, so why does that matter? And if I could just pause for a moment, forgive me for preaching, too often pro-lifers and pro-life Christians in particular allow our opponents to make claims that we leave unchallenged. If I claim that body size or level of development is what gives me value, I have the burden of proof, not you, the listener. So we are always within our epistemic rights to say, well, why does having body size or why does having a certain level of development suddenly transfer me from being a non-human, non-person we can intentionally kill to a valuable human being that I can't be, that can't be killed? They've got to give an argument for why those differences matter. And this SLED ac- acronym shows that they don't matter. So body size doesn't determine value. Level of development, sure, you were less developed as an embryo, but again, so what? Two-year-old girls don't have a reproductive system that's developed, but we don't think we can intentionally kill them simply because their development isn't finished yet. By the way, uh, development continues long after birth. Uh, I speak to teenage audiences all the time, high school students, and I remind them that they are less developed than their parents, They are less developed than their parents physically, and they're less developed than their parents intellectually, which of course comes as a complete shock to many of them. But the reality is you don't reach your intellectual peak till your mid-40s. Body development doesn't bestow value. E stands for environment. Where you are doesn't determine what you are. How does a journey of seven inches down the birth canal suddenly transform you from non-human, non-valuable thing that can be killed to a valuable human being that can't be. You've got to argue for how a change in location makes a difference. Of course, you know, that leads to the next thing. People say, well, the unborn are too dependent. So D stands for degree of dependency. Yes, the unborn are dependent, but simply pointing that out isn't a justification for killing them. You have to go a step further and argue why dependency on another human being means you can be intentionally killed. There are conjoined twins. Uh, For example, there's a a set of conjoined twins. Uh, I, I can't remember their names. I'm gonna have to think about them. They're known as the Henschel twins. And I think they're known as Abigail and Brittany. And they are joined literally at the hip. And they are now in their early 30s. The press has followed them through three and a half decades. And you look at these girls, you see one set of legs, Two body trunks uh, going up from the hips, and then two shoulders, two heads. Does it follow that neither one of those girls has a right to life because they depend on each other's bodily systems to survive? In other words, size, level of development, environment, meaning where we're located and degree of dependency, are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then but not now. And what typically happens is people just invent arbitrary lines, magical moments, like Joe Rogan pointed out, that suddenly bestow personhood. But we should always ask, why is that level of development necessary and decisive? Why is it value giving? They need to argue for it, not merely assert it. And we can always then press back and say, oh, you say it's consciousness that matters? What do you mean by consciousness? Do you mean actual consciousness? Because that rules you out when you're sleeping. Or do you mean having an immediately exercisable capacity for it, which would mean you're safe when you're sleeping, but not when you're you're in anesthesia having surgery? Or do you mean merely having a natural capacity? for consciousness. Well, that would protect you while you're sleeping. It would protect you while you're having surgery. But guess who else it would protect? The unborn, because even without immediately being able to exercise consciousness, they do have the natural capacity for it in virtue of the kind of thing they are. So these are why these arguments that are based on magical moments ultimately fail. They can't tell us why that particular threshold has meaning.
2: Go ahead. Well, no, I'm just sitting here thinking of like how many arguments that I've put forward from the the place of viability. Yeah. And, you know, like how all of that can break down if, you know, if the sled argument is true. You know what I mean? Like th- the viability right. argument then gets thrown out of the window and that you was have a to critical, go back. that was a critical yeah. argument for you. Viability was big.
1: And so- it's big for a lot of people, Monique. And here's the thing. Viability does not measure the value of the fetus. It values the state of our technology. A child in a state-of-the-art hospital in New York City is viable at 22 weeks. A child in Bangladesh who is uh, born prematurely at 36 weeks may be in real trouble because there's not medical technology to assist mm-hmm. that child. So think about the absurdity that follows from saying that viability is what gives us our value and a right to life. Suppose a woman is pregnant and she's traveling from JFK, John F. Kennedy Airport in New York City, to Bangladesh. I'll go ahead and stick with Bangladesh since I brought it up. And she's pregnant. She's 22 weeks pregnant. Is her child a human with value and a right to life as long as the plane is in New York airspace? But the minute it enters Bangladesh airspace, her child goes from being non being human and valuable, valuable to being non-human and non-valuable, but then goes back again to being human and valuable when the mother flies home. I mean, these are the kinds of absurd things that follow from trying to draw the line uh, at viability. And then there's the whole other thing we, we can point out, too, related to... Uh, where we're located and our degree of dependency. We now have surgery techniques that we do on unborn humans where the child is removed from the womb, Mm -hmm. the defect is corrected at say 22 to 24 weeks, and then put back in the womb where the child is born naturally at 40 weeks. Does that child go from being non-human while it's in the womb to briefly being human and valuable while it's outside having surgery, but then back again to being non-human and valuable and we can kill it once it's put back in the womb? I mean, these are just absurd consequences that follow from drawing these kinds of lines.
2: I, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> is that helpful? It, it is. It's super helpful. You know, I had a conversation with a couple of people Um over the last few days and um, even just looked at things like, well, if, if it, if it's not a human person, if, you know, if the life is not alive, why, if we kill a pregnant mother is, you know, the murderer now guilty of two counts of murder, even if you're on your way to have an abortion, if you don't make it to the abortion center because you um, got, you got in a car accident or somebody killed you or whatever, that person is, now going to be up on two counts not just one count and so just even looking at like that discrepancy my brain is just going in a bunch of
1: different ways but well no you're pointing out something very powerful to use with people we call this cognitive dissonance and you're right look a woman uh is on her way to an abortion clinic to have the abortion she has an accident with the doctor who's going to kill her child 10 minutes later if he harms or kills her child he is criminally negligent in, I think, something like 31 states, uh, I mean, this is craziness. Yet if she makes it to the hospital and the child is killed there, I should say the abortion clinic, and the child is killed there, no problem. This is the craziness of defining human value subjectively, which is what our postmodern culture is doing.
3: Yeah. Well, I want to walk us through a couple of biblical passages because I don't think enough conversation happens around this because we're seeing the growth on Surgeons of, you know, more progressive thought uh, even coming into many of our churches. And so I want to put forward a a couple of common arguments. And again, this was prompted by a commenter who came on our Instagram account, uh, responding to our show with uh, Dr. Chris, the OBGYN. So the and this is kind of was this commenter trying to make a using the Bible to make a case for abortion. And um, I have to admit, like, this was new for me. I hadn't heard these arguments before. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. So then I had to kind of look into what this was. So let's start with Genesis 2-7. In fact, I have a little meme here that's been going around uh, to help us that uh, I've seen many progressives posting that's just supposed to silence uh, pro-life people so Bob's going to put it on this screen here. Forced birth extremist, which maybe we can break, it, break down that kind of wording. Uh, my religion says you can't have an abortion. Me. The Bible says life begins at first breath. Clumps of cells don't, I think they mean breathe, air in the womb. Genesis 2-7. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and it was then that the man became a living being. Forced birth extremist looks like Pikachu with uh, (laughs) his mouth open.
1: (laughs) Yeah,
4: I've seen this meme
3: everywhere.
1: Yeah, so here's my response to it. I agree. Every human being that God creates directly out of dirt is not a living person until God breathes air into them. I quite agree. Now, my question for the critics is this, were you created that way? Did God create you directly out of dirt? If not, your your entire argument collapses. It's just complete foolishness. But beyond this- Would that be a category a
3: human... error? Would that be that type of fallacy that's a category, oh, yeah, error? category error? Complete
1: category okay. error. Complete category error. And not only that, it would justify killing newborns. I mean, newborns do not always breathe immediately upon exiting the womb. Let's say it takes a couple of minutes- before they can get that child breathing or maybe 30 seconds. It would follow from this argument, it's okay to slip the child's throat immediately upon exit from the womb because after all, it hasn't taken its first breath. But there's a third problem with this and it, this is the scientific error with their argument. The unborn do in fact breathe in the womb. Just the mode of breathing changes. Instead of taking air directly through the uh, lungs, they take it through the umbilical cord, through the the mother's bloodstream. So oxygen is still being transferred. It's just switching the mode, like switching from AC to DC.
3: Yeah, I think the, I want to have you also comment on the rise of this, this phraseology of forced birth, that we are now forced birthers. This is something <laughs> I'm hearing um, with you know, more recently, an increasing frequency. Um, what's your take on on that phraseology?
1: Let's go back to our three key words, syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. Suppose we are the worst people in the world. We are forced birthers. We are not pro-life. We are simply pro-birth. We hate every child that's born once he's born. We only love him until he's born. Uh, and we hate women. We want to uh, persecute women. Suppose all of that is true. Could our argument that the unborn are human and intentionally killing them is wrong still be valid and sound? And the answer is yes, because arguments stand or fall apart from the people making them Rather, they stand on their merits. And this is a classic example of what I opened with, that people love to change the subject on abortion. They Mm -hmm. don't want to refute the argument. They want to refute the person by attacking them and kind of characterizing them as some kind of evil thug. It will not refute our argument. Now, uh, I'm quite happy to be-
3: would that be an Go example ahead. of like a ad hominem type of fallacy? It's ad hominem fallacy,
1: exactly. Yeah, so
3: reframing it, forced birth extremist, you know, that we're not going to respond to the actual argument. We're going to have this no, diversion. No, we're going to call you
1: names. We're yeah. going to call you names. So yeah. the, the, the best response we can give is to say, look at them with a bit of sarcasm and say, well, maybe I am and maybe I'm not a forced birther. How does that refute the actual argument mm-hmm. that I made? You've got to refute my argument. Otherwise, you're just calling me names. That's not going to get us anywhere. And sometimes we literally have to narrate the debate for the person and say, you know, I made a syllogism. I made an actual argument for my view. And I was hoping you could show me where my argument goes wrong, because I really do want to get at the truth. But you haven't shown me where my argument goes wrong. You just called me names like a forced birther, like an extremist. Could you show me where my actual argument goes wrong? And sometimes you have to be that direct with people.
2: I think, um, well, two things that are coming to me right now is one, people actually have to know how to argue and and the skills of argumentation and debate in order to be able to do that. It's a really important skill that I don't know many people have. And so this is super helpful t- for us to be thinking about, like, how are you mm-hmm. having this conversation? What are ways that you might need to help someone along in thinking about this? But then, too, I kind of feel like, you know, some people get called names and the whole thing just falls apart. They can't handle being called a name. Like, sometimes right. you're just going to have to, you know, buck up and know that the names are going to come. The conversations are going to be hard. inevitable. And yet- Yes. 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 Inevitable. inevitable. And buck up, Buttercup, because this is this is the time that we're in. And you can do this. You can put forth a solid argument on behalf of the unborn.
3: Well, I I think that's where Seth Dillon's example is so great. Do you notice like how calm he stayed Mm -hmm. under pressure? Yes. Yes. Like like he he just he wasn't getting confrontational. He was just very calm. He he wasn't getting upset. He just kind of kept staying on. Is one point mm-hmm. of, you know, if if the unborn is a human person, if it's wrong to kill a human person, then, you know, abortion is, is murder and is yeah. wrong. You know, so That's I right. think that 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 is a good example for us of being prepared, staying on the point, yeah not getting distracted by all of these other these other accusations, charges, rabbit Names, trails, yeah. you, you know, all of that. Syllogism,
1: so, syllogism, syllogism. Yeah, it's and a good lesson. Keep coming back to it. Do not let them change the subject. They have to show that your argument is invalid, is unsound, or equivocates. If they cannot do one of those three things, they have not refuted your argument.
3: And here we're, I'm going to say a little side comment and kind of tie this into our very uh, common conversations that we have um, related to the critical social theories, because logic, the laws of logic, looking at fallacies, this whole area of of knowledge um, is being recast right now as a product of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Right. That this is an artifact of of white culture, white thought. And I think that for us as historic Christians, we have to understand that these are these are um, important principles that we cannot allow to just be flushed down the drain as part of the race conversation. Nope. Yeah. We've nope. got to also stand for the transcendence, mm-hmm. the transcultural application of things like the laws of logic and and that sort of a thing. I don't know, Scott, if if, if you want to comment yeah. on that, but
1: that's sort of oh, a side issue. I'm really glad you brought this up. It's actually not a side issue. It is primary to the threats we face right now. Look, on critical race theory, we have thrown epistemology out the window. Epistemology is a big word, but it means how we know things, how we justify our beliefs. And on critical race theory, we've thrown out traditional knowing with what's known as standpoint epistemology. And standpoint epistemology says that arguments are not evaluated on their merits They're argued, or I should say, they're evaluated based on the standpoint of the victim, the alleged victim. So if you happen to be a white male, you are an oppressor. You have no points at all to argue your case. In fact, all you can do is be silent and practice self-negation. However, if you happen to be a minority woman who also happens to be a lesbian, who also happens to maybe have had an abortion, you have standpoint to make your case, and the rightness or wrongness of arguments is evaluated on standpoint rather than the arguments themselves. This throws reason into the toilet, and uh, we cannot stand for this. We absolutely have to oppose Uh, this new epistemology known as standpoint epistemology, we have to come against it and say, no, we're gonna stick to logic. Look, a black female who makes the same exact pro-life arguments that I do and they do, uh, her case is not going going to be any more logically sound or valid than my case. It just means the spokesperson is different and we have to stick to evaluating arguments based on their merits.
2: Yep, it's argumentation based on social location. Yeah.
1: That's exactly it.
2: We say truth knows no color. Like capital T truth. If it's true, it's true, regardless of the color you are. And so that's why
3: we can have a conversation with Scott as a man talking about women's issues. Because there's this whole thing like, well, a man can't talk about abortion because he's not a woman. Mm -hmm. That's all part of the same thing.
1: Stream of it God. is and and the snarky part of me. If I were going to engage in shenanigans, Let's uh, that's a word you've it's not a new word, but a, a, a word you've reminded me of. If I were being snarky, when somebody says to me, You're a man, you can't even talk about this, I'm tempted to say, Well, how do you know I'm a man? I mean, in today's world, <laughs> do you really want to assume that? Uh, yes. this is the age of Caitlyn Jenner, people. Uh, but anyway, arguments don't have gender. People do, and oh, by the way, if no man can speak on abortion, we should have done away with Roe v. Wade fifty years ago because it was decided by nine men. So this whole argument is just bogus.
3: Okay, all right, let's go do another biblical argument here. I want to look at Exodus chapter twenty-two. Bob, you got to interrupt the shenanigans. Well, I'm trying to keep it going here. All right, all right. So we got Exodus twenty-two. This is another uh, very popular passage in the abortion conversation where people see some wiggle room for the pro abortion case. So I'm going to read this for our podcast listeners. Um, It's starting of verse 22 of Exodus 20, um, 21, yes. If people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined. Whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So I think the idea here is that there's some some wiggle room on the um, the value of the woman versus the value of the fetus or the unborn.
1: Yeah, what they're trying to do, yeah, what they're trying to do here is argue that the Bible places a lesser value on the unborn offspring than it does the woman. And of course, the context here is two guys are duking it out, they're fighting, and they inadvertently collide with a woman who's pregnant who's standing by. And in their accidental encounter with her, they trigger a miscarriage. Now, two particular versions of the Bible, the Jerusalem Bible and the Revised Standard Version, translate this text that if the fetus is harmed, there's only a fine, but if the mother is harmed, the lex talianos, the law of retribution applies, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, burn for burn. And they argue that because, allegedly, God only prescribes a fine versus the life for life, tooth for tooth that he does for the woman, the unborn therefore are not human, and therefore intentionally killing them is okay. Well, let's look at this passage for just a moment. Suppose the Jerusalem Bible is right, and in a moment I'll show you that it's not. But suppose it were. How does it follow that because there's a lesser penalty for accidentally harming an unborn offspring, that we may intentionally harm the unborn offspring? This is a complete non sequitur. One case, it's an accidental encounter. In another case, we're talking about intentionally killing the fetus through directly acting on his body with the intent to harm. So there's no connection here at all. This verse does nothing, even with the pro-abortion interpretation, to justify abortion. But secondly, we should point out that in this particular case, The Jerusalem Bible and the Revised Standard Version get it wrong. The NIV version that you just cited, the NASB, uh, the ESV, all indicate that if either is harmed, if the child comes forth, and notice it doesn't even say the child dies, it just is premature miscarriage. If there's no harm from the premature miscarriage to either child or mother, then you uh, only pay a fine. But if there is harm to either, the lex talianos applies. And read in the original Hebrew, that's the translation, that's the meaning of the text. It is only those two other versions, the Jerusalem Bible and the Revised Slander, or I almost said Reviled Slandered Version, Revised Standard Version (laughs) that get it wrong. So uh, if you read it in the original text and according to the majority of translations today, Exodus 21 does nothing to prove the unborn aren't human. Now, one other thing I might say, a few verses prior to this particular passage, in the same chapter, a master unintentionally kills a slave. Now we know it's unintentional because a period of three or four days goes by before the slave dies from his injury. But this master is beating his slave. And when the slave dies unintentionally a few days later, uh, the master is not penalized. There is no lex talianos that applies. Do we want to argue the slave was not human? I mean, this is what follows from trying to bend scripture to make it fit our view. Very
3: good points. Very helpful. Yeah. Um, I want to go to a couple of comments here. Um, our friend Susanna on uh, YouTube she says, uh, look, the, the tactics are kind of like distraction tactics. Look over there. Not here. This is a distraction technique. That's often what happens. Candy is a a Canadian listener. She says, yeah, when I've had this conversation, I just get that you're a religious nut. You can't legislate your religion. And I'm like, when did I ever bring up my religion? And I think, Scott, that goes to your point about the importance of making the scientific case.
1: Syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. Let's suppose I am religious. Okay. Okay. Arguments are either sound or unsound, valid or invalid. Calling an argument religious is another category error, like, as my friend Frank Beckwith points out, asking how tall is the number five. You've got to do the hard work of actually refuting the pro life argument. Calling us names, calling our arguments names are dismissals, they're not refutations. Very good.
2: Go ahead. I'm, uh, my brain, I'm just, I'm just I know you're proce- it I can tell yeah. you're processing
3: a lot. Lots going in there. Uh, did you want to read anything from, from Facebook? Any comments from mm, CFB? No, I don't
2: think so. I'll
3: look, okay. but you can go ahead. Okay. Um, so there's been a question that's been kind of lurking in the background of our whole conversation that I want to make sure that, that we cover while we have you here. And that is understanding how the terms person or personhood and being a human often um, come into this discussion mm-hmm. because uh, in some contexts those two terms that we kind of use synonymously as meaning the same thing have been pulled apart and actually have two very different definitions. This is a very important um, issue for, for people to be aware of as they're making their case, because I've seen um Progressive Christians often use this differentiation between being a human and being a person. So maybe, Scott, if you can talk us through that a little
1: bit. Well, I always want to ask when I hear this, have you ever met someone who was a human but not a person? Now, those listeners with teenagers may say, uh, yeah, I I think we need to have a discussion about that. But seriously, have you ever met a human that wasn't a person? And who bears the burden of proof when that claim is made? If I'm going to claim there's a a set of humans over here that we can set aside to be killed because they're non-persons, but there's another set of humans over here that are persons that we can't kill, who bears the burden of proof at that moment? Well, I do if I'm going to make that claim. So right away, I think pro-lifers need to realize they don't need to get defensive here. They're not the ones making that claim. Their critics are, and the burden of proof is on the critic who's making the claim that there can be such a thing as so a human So the claim that just to
3: clarify, the claim is that a fetus can be a human, right? But it might not yet right. be, be a, a person. Perfect.
1: That's correct. And, that and personhood I'm asking...
3: is something to be achieved or or gained at a, at some magic moment.
1: Right, and my claim here is that they bear the, bear, they bear the burden of proof if they're gonna make that claim. If they're gonna claim there can be such a thing as a human who's not a person, that the unborn are human but they're not persons, they've gotta argue for why or how that's even possible. But let's take it a little further. Notice the, the standards they use for determining who is a person and who isn't. First of all, they're always arbitrarily selected. Consciousness, why is that decisive for being a person? Viability, why is that decisive for being a person? The ability to interact with our environment, why is that decisive? They need to argue for those things, not merely assert them. And they don't argue for them, they simply assert them. But secondly, notice that these things they pick out as decisive prove way more than they want them to. Uh, Newborns are not self-aware. They do not have a sense of seeing themselves exist over time. Is it okay to kill newborns? At least people like Peter Singer and Jeff McMahon and others in the academy are willing to bite the bullet and be consistent and say, yeah, our argument justifies killing newborns and maybe in some cases even toddlers. Uh, at least they're willing, but your average person on the street doesn't want to go down that road at all. They want to draw this arbitrary line at birth and say, until birth, it's not a person, it's only a biological human. But then thirdly, uh, look at this. What does this do to human equality? If our rights are based on properties that none of us share equally, and that may come and go in the course of our lifetimes, then it follows that, that those who have more of those traits are more human and valuable than those who have less. For example, are we all equal in terms of our physical ability? I mean, I can tell you at age 62, I can't play basketball like I could at 42 or 22. I can still shoot the three, but I'm just too slow to get open. But if Planned Parenthood is right, that physical development is what makes you a person, and you have more of it than me, then it follows you have a greater right to life than me and human equality is out the window. If we say it's self-consciousness or self-awareness that gives us value and you have more of it than me, maybe you had more coffee before the show than I did, so your synapses are firing on all cylinders, I don't know. But if self-consciousness or self-awareness is what gives us value and you have more of it than me, it follows you have greater rights than me and human equality is out the window. The pro-life advocate has a much better argument we are endowed with dignity as persons. In other words, our value, our personhood is not achieved through performance because those performance traits come and go and none of us share them equally. Rather, it is based on our common human nature. All human beings from the earliest stages of development until natural death have a nature that bears the image of their maker, and that's the foundation for human equality. And that human nature doesn't come in degrees like viability or self-awareness. You have it from the moment you begin to exist. The only question is, how much can you express your traits? It's not a question of whether you're human and valuable in the first place.
2: Mm, that's really good. You know, the, the human versus person argument makes me actually think about slavery and the argument yes. that, um, that slaves weren't human persons or, um, you know, the, the question of are, that are black humans, hum- but humans not, were, but not, not persons, persons or, or, you know, the, yes. the back and forth argument and how much value did a black person have because of potentially not being a person, but being a human and things like that. And it, it It seems like this argument has just progressed to a
1: different set of human beings. It has. It has, Monique. In fact, Abraham Lincoln addressed this issue straight on, and I'm going to quote him almost word for word here. When he would debate proponents of slavery who argued the black man differed from us and therefore he could be enslaved, Lincoln replied as follows, quote, you say man A is white, man B is dark. Oh, it is skin color then, the fair-skinned man having the right to enslave the dark-skinned man? Take care, by that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with skin fairer than your own. You say it's not skin color, it's a matter of intelligence. The white man, you allege, has superior intellect to the dark man. Take care yet again, by that rule, you're a slave to the first person you meet with an intellect superior to yours. Now, I think you see what Lincoln just did there. These same traits that people put out there to say the unborn are human, but they're not persons work equally well to disqualify a lot of people outside the womb. The only true basis for human equality is our common human nature, which we all have from the moment we begin to exist.
3: Very That's good. Uh, as we're kind of wrapping things up here, I'm wondering, Scott, what do you see on the horizon for the, the pro-life conversation? Um, you know, what do you see as emerging issues in the wake of Roe? Uh, do, do you think the conversation is going to shift to something new? I'm noticing more and more rhetoric around abortion becoming reclassified as a justice issue, which yeah. many progressive Christians are even latching on to. Um, one only needs to go watch the woke preacher clips account to see numerous, eclipse, numerous clips um, rel- with progressive Christians talking about abortion as a justice issue. I'm just wondering, what do you see on the horizon?
1: Uh, three things. Number one, many of the things you pointed out here we're going to see. Uh, we're going to see people try to use scripture to support abortion. And we're going. these are not new arguments, by the way. They've been around 50 years, but they're going to resurface again and again. And progressive, uh, I'll say Christians in quote marks, uh, are going to be pushing them wholesale. You're going to see them everywhere. Second thing you're going to see misinformation about facts. You're going to continue to see scare tactics like if we make abortion illegal, women who have ectopic pregnancies and need life-saving surgery won't be able to get it. Or a woman who has a miscarriage is going to get prosecuted and get the death penalty for having an abortion. These are nothing but hysterical scare tactics but we're going to have to step up and answer these hysterical tactics. And then a third thing, and this one just sickens me. Uh, After Roe v. Wade, I went through and watched a lot of the large churches in the US. How did they respond to the reversal of Roe v. Wade? Very few of them did what our pastor did. He stood in the pulpit and said, this is a historical day. God has released us from something that has plagued us for 50 years, and we all need to take up Uh, the effort of saving the unborn. Instead, what I saw is people saying things like, well, you know, we need to be very concerned for those who are hurting right now. And it was all about being concerned about hurting people. How about the hurting unborn who are systematically butchered over the last 50 years? Uh, The misplacement of moral outrage is very disturbing to me. And I fear that as pro-life Christians, we are going to have to be people who do a great deal of mor- moral tutoring to help our fellow uh christians understand the nature of of logic and reasoning ooh
2: i can't even go down that road i've spent the last couple of days watching um watching a a, can- a gov- gu- gubernatorial candidate um going around she's black and she's going around to different black churches um it just telling them why they should be pro-choice, why they should be upset about the overturning of Roe v. Wade and why or how they can advocate to get um, their state back to being, you know, Pro-choice and doing all of the the pro-choice work and things like that, but I mean, she's in the pulpit. Oh yeah, she's talking on Sunday mornings. She's talking on Wednesday nights, and she's addressing entire addressing um entire congregations. And I just it 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 saddens my heart to know you know how abortion impacts the Black community more oh, so severely. It it it's like it decimates. Our yeah. community, you know, like when you look at a state like New York where you have more black babies aborted than born, you know, it, the reality is that, you know, yes, you have some churches who um, who say, you know, we should, you know, consider those who are hurting and remember to pray for them and don't be, you know, jerks and things like that. But then you you also have this other lane where people are bringing in pro-choice people and teaching them how to become a pro-choice advocate and they're literally
1: in the pulpit advocating for murder. Oh, they are. Yeah. And it but that that's harmful, but I'll tell you what else is harmful. I used to attend a church in Southern California that for 50 years prayed that abortion would end and put a great focus on intercessory prayer and said, we have got to pray this. The answer to abortion is not political, it's spiritual. Then when Roe is reversed, what do they do? Their pastor stands up that next Sunday and says, well, we shouldn't celebrate this. We need to be concerned about those who are afraid right now and hurting, and that needs Mm -hmm. to be our focus. What? I mean, this is the kind of stuff that just makes you, it boggles the mind, Monique, but I'll tell you something. A lot of Christians right now think the midterm elections are going to be, uh, they're going to save us. Uh, I'm not so sure it's going to be the gigantic red wave they think it will be. It's quite possible abortion will become an issue the left can galvanize and use it to uh, flip that script. I hope I'm wrong about that, but none of us should take our civic involvement for granted right now. Uh, We need to be registered to vote to make a difference and grab 10 other people and make sure they're registered to vote to make a difference.
2: Yep. Yes. Yes. Love that. By the way, yeah. I don't know if
1: politics is permitted, but uh, I think I just no, uh, this... threw out some shenanigans there. Huh? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you talk about all things with the God, the Bible and real life. And this is real life. Now, we're not going to yep. tell you how to vote, but we will tell you that it is important for you to read the platforms of the parties. And if you know your word, you you should be informed on how to vote.
3: And people can, I'm going to have our moderators put a link to our conversation with um, Abraham Hamilton III, where we talked about advocacy uh, last year. That was an awesome conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, I learned so much from that. So our moderators can put that in the chat. Uh, Really, uh, we'll wrap it up here. I got a couple of quick comments on um, YouTube. Uh, Susanna says, if a mentally disabled adult is human, but isn't a person... That would mean that eugenics then could be justified. Um, Would similar arguments apply for the mentally disabled?
1: Yeah, this is Lincoln's point. You can't restrict. Uh, your victim class. You try to say, oh, I'm only going to apply personhood arguments to blacks, or I'm only going to apply personhood arguments to the unborn. No, it ends up dehumanizing people outside your intended victim class. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people outside the womb that have the cognitive development of a cow. Does that mean we can Mm -hmm. intentionally kill them? Uh, Would Mm -hmm. we take a two-year-old who's a Down syndrome and slit his throat in the name that he's not really a person because he can't function with self-awareness and he doesn't value his existence over time. I mean, this is what follows from these kinds of arguments. And here's the question I love to put to people. Name one time in human history, just one, where we segregated human beings from human persons where it ended well. It never ends well. It always ends in genocide. Very good. Once again, I want
3: to connect people to your ministry. Why don't you tell us about your website and how people can follow you and all of that?
1: Well, two things. If they want to take a deep dive into the ethics of abortion, they can go to Frank Turek's site, Cross Examined. And next January, I am doing a course, a 10-week course for a certificate where we will take a deep dive into the thinkers on the other side. And I would suggest they consider signing up for that course at uh, crossexamined.org. uh, second thing, our website is ProLifeTraining.com, ProLifeTraining.com, and they can get resources on us. If you want me to speak at your pregnancy center banquet, I do a lot of those. If you want me to come do a seminar and train your church, happy to do that. These are the kinds of things we do at LTI, and it would be a joy to partner with any of you.
2: Very good. Well, thank you so
3: much. And I want to mention your book really quick here. We, we've we had the The Case for Life on your lower <laughs> third tonight, but... I want to make sure that people can continue that conversation and get more equipping through uh, Scott Klusendorf's book, The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. There's no finer discussion than you're going to find on the topic than that. So go check that out as well. So yeah, thank and you I so think much it's a good for thing this. for them to
1: do because, you know, some of your listeners may have been taking notes faster than broke people at a Dave Ramsey seminar while I was talking, <laughs> and they may have been thinking, how am I going to keep up with this guy? That's uh, right. The reality is um, the book covers everything we've talked about, including the theological arguments.
2: Excellent. Thank you so much. I've appreciated the conversation. It's just, for me personally, it just helps me to continue to grow um, as I'm, like, confidently outside of the pro-choice situation, but just hearing, you know, ways in which you can put forth the argument and things to think about, it's been super helpful.
1: Well, thank you, Monique. And let's not forget those three key words. They are syllogism, syllogism, syllogism.
2: All
3: right. Thanks. Thanks, Scott.
1: Thank you, ladies.
3: God bless. All right, that was really good. I was. I learned a lot. Yeah, and just such an honor to be able to to talk to somebody of Scott's caliber and in his expertise. Uh, you think
2: you're ready to be pro-life now? I, I I'm getting there. Okay, I'm gonna pray for you. <laughs> I'll pray for you.
3: No, it's it's uh it's good, and I'm just glad to be able to bring these kinds of quality conversations. To our listeners. All right. We're going to hear from our friends at Impact 360. We'll see you in one minute for uh, another segment and to wrap up the show.
4: Change isn't going to come just because you want it to. Change comes because you are intentionally taking steps to making that change.
2: I aspire to be someone who continues to build bridges with other cultures and to cultivate a community that's healthy and honoring to the Lord and life-giving.
3: Now after the program, I feel like I know what my purpose is and I know what I want to do going out into the world. And had I not had this time to step back and just kind of be patient and be still and just listen, I don't think I would have had that same clarity.
4: In this world, it's kind of like
2: in a scream contest. Who can scream the loudest and who's going to listen to that person yelling the loudest? And that person should be gone. But He's not yelling. He's calling us. My hope going forward to interact with culture is to tell people, like, hey, like, be still. Listen to this guy is calling you. He's calling you home. All, All right. right. We're going to be at Impact 360 later this year again. Yeah. Some shenanigans and fun. Yes.
3: You know who was at uh, Summit? Uh, I think last week was Scott Klusendorf. Oh, I think I saw a picture of him at uh on Instagram that he Ooh, was at there
2: two weeks ago, yeah, yeah right,
3: yeah, so
2: it's awesome being able to how is this um, our
3: lives that we get to hang out with these kind of people'
2: Cause God is gracious and good man It's gracious and good, but it's I was gonna say it's awesome being able to share such important information mm-hmm. with young people, yeah. you know it it really just helps to. You know, answer their questions and hear how the current reality, this current world that we're living in is impacting them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. All right. So you have segment two. Yeah. So it's all you boo.
3: <laughs> so we were on the phone a couple of days ago with somebody from a, a major Christian ministry and they're, they're kind of more in the secular space than we are. I don't know who
2: you talking about, but okay, I'm a follow. I'm back. Go ahead. (laughs) So um,
3: she asked a provocative question that I thought would be kind of fun to have an interactive uh, segment here at the end of the show was, she says, you know, you guys talk a lot about unity from a biblical perspective. Um, She was asking the question, what is it that unifies us um, from a secular perspective, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I was thinking about this question because, you know when i was a kid there were certain noble ideas that were involved in you know what does it mean to be an american um that there were certain core ideas that united us no matter what our family background was no matter where we came from and that um and i was just curious and i would love it if people put it in the chat uh you know just thinking about um what is it that that ought to unite us as Americans. It's not what's going on over here. Is Hmm. that your earring? My earring just fell out.
2: He just (laughs) left. I don't know.
3: You just crawled away. Um, But what is, uh, what are some of the ideals, the noble ideals of being an American? Um, We don't talk about this. Like I don't hear a lot of conversation in the popular culture of, Hey, these are kind of the 10 noble principles of, of what it means to be an American, uh, historically, like there's so much grievance talk today. Um, so I'm kind of flipping it around and asking the question, you know, what are the noble ideas that, that might unite us as Americans? Like one that came to me when we were on the call and I would love it for you to share one too, is, is, is that, one of the the American ideas is that it doesn't matter where you came from, whether, you know, whatever your circumstances are, no matter who your parents are or what your socioeconomic status is, that there was the, the promise or the possibility that through hard work and diligence that you could overcome uh, your situation, that there was an opportunity to to move up socially. No, you're not buying that. I,
2: I, it honestly makes me think about, um, you know, what is the lie that, and this is kind of it's a roundabout kind of way, but you know, what is the lie that many Americans have been have bought into that has allowed us to become separated? Because no, I, I don't want to say, talk about no, the no, 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 I'm not talking. Wanted, that, I'm not talking. It's not. It's not a, it's not a no, grievance right, thing all right, all right. because I think that there are many. Immigrants to America that would that would b- buy what you're saying. We want to be here because when you work hard, you can become whatever you want to be. Like you can you, you can, can start better a your station in life. You can start a business. You can send your kids to school. You can get education. Like all of that. Now on my end, when I was growing up, I learned more of the things that all white people are racist. That you know you you can work hard, but you're only going to get to the place. Um, that somebody else tells you you can get. Now you know you you might slip through, and you, but I mean I I heard that all the way through, and so that's what I'm saying. Like like yes, I do think that there are unifying principles about America. I just think that at some point. There a lie slipped in and be able to and was able to create a chasm. I agree. And so I'm just um, but I'm trying, I'm trying to reflect to of, on yeah, what know. the
3: nobility is, not the grievance. Uh, There's so
2: much energy around the grievance these days. I'm trying just, to ask a different question. I hear what your question is. It just makes me that's the question that came to my mind of like, if 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 I was growing up, because you say growing up, this is the principle that I always heard. And so I'm trying to think of like growing up, what was that unifying principle that I heard as being an American? Well, I I heard a lot about being an African-American and what that meant for my community. But the, the larger... Construct of being an American wasn't something that was really instilled deeply into me. I was an African and I, am, I didn't leave being an African-American. I'm still an African-American, but, you know, I have a, a larger appreciation of being an American, having lived overseas, having changed, you know, some of my worldview and things like that. But to, to say, you know, I just grew up with this huge appreciation that, you know, we can all pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. I was, you know, more or less told that this whole bootstraps myth was, you know, just for one group of people.
3: And yet, isn't it interesting how you but, and ca- all your. I call si- it a myth
2: today de- or then. Sorry, I'm not saying that, you know. But that's, isn't that's interesting
3: it interesting how you and all your your siblings have transcended. The situation, you know. You've all left the hood and have jobs and are sustaining yourselves. Yeah, and my
2: brother's a fireman. He yeah. like he does well for himself. My He's a fireman and great. a nurse. Yeah. Like, yeah,
3: like who does that? He's amazing. Yeah. So I don't know. So let's let's. Aunt um,
2: said, "Look at some um, YouTube comments she here." Says,
3: oh, did I thought Jeff oh, maybe Davis you were says, uh, back then "Work hard and you can achieve more than you thought." Yeah, I think that that. Definitely is one of the noble ideas of being an American. The only thing that limits you is yourself. Um, Candy, like I would wonder as a Canadian, what is your impression of what the American dream is? Like that's something Americans we don't really talk about anymore is like, what's the content of that? What is the American dream? What was it when we were growing up? Hard work. Hard work creating something that did not exist previously. Yeah.
2: I'm going to have to, maybe I'll do that on off code. We can talk about the, the, what was the, the divider that kind of separated out this conversation, because I think that that would be an interesting take because do I believe that America offers, um, you know, opportunities that most other countries don't offer. Is there something wonderful about being in America? I wouldn't want to live anywhere else and i have you know traveled but um it's there is something i feel like that is missing in the conversation of well you know certain certain groups or um segments of of our country are raised with a with certain ideals and beliefs and and if you don't have certain beliefs um about yourself or about the place that you're at you will generally Play into the beliefs that you do uphold. Yeah, and so how are we watching that unfold in real time?
3: Uh, Candy asked if we watched Uncle Tom. Yeah, we watched Uncle Tom one and two last. We watched Uncle watched Tom two, two last, last night. night. Mm-hmm. Um, she's going to she, Uncle Tom two. She has had a big announcement about Uncle Tom for Off Code, so I won't spoil that. But yeah, there's nice. something coming.
2: Random um,
3: the American Dream apparently was a part of the black community rhetoric, but then it changed. I think that would, like you said, make an interesting
2: candy. Yes. Yes. Oh yes. 100%. I think that many blacks were participating in the American dream, especially right after slavery, right after slavery, you have through the civil rights. You have the, the most, um, blacks participating in things like Congress and in, um, leadership offices within our nation. um, you have like blacks starting universities, you have the increase of black wealth. You see a black community that saw themselves as American. And so the idea that, um, you know, I can say, you know, growing up, I didn't, that wasn't my experience. It makes me question like, well, what happened where the tide turned or the shift turned? Um, and that was no longer part of the conversation. I think Uncle Tom, too, definitely hits on this of, like, we have exchanged something within the black community. There is something going on that um, we have either picked up a lie, we have left behind a truth. Something has has been exchanged. Um where we don't participate as we did when you look at, at blacks coming out of slavery, going through, even through Jim Crow, you know, going through um, the civil rights time and all that, I would say right up until about the civil rights, the, the, you know, passing the civil rights laws and things like that, you see a different black community.
3: Uh, In answer to my question of what does Candy's understanding of the American dream, she says, you can be whatever you want to be if you're willing to work for it. Artist, businessman, etc. That's why everyone is trying to get there. Um, you know, I might add to this, um, you know, the concept of free speech mm-hmm. is a big part of the the American ethos, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom to gather, um, the Second Amendment of, you know, the right to bear arms, um, prohibitions against unlawful search and seizure. These are some of our, you know, core ideas. But I think that part of the problem of Americans is why we're so stuck in grievance conversations is I don't think we have clarity about the the, the reverse of that, of what should be the positive, noble ideas that Americans used to rally around and really have as part of their unifying identity. I just don't hear anybody talk like that anymore. Not even the the big conservative voices like the Daily Wire or Prager or anything. It's like everything seems to be so reactionary now. Is everyone's responding to the grievances, but is there there's a voice out there that's making the positive case for this is these are the noble ideas of what being an American has historically stood for that people could actually rally around or remember maybe that voice is out there and I just have forgotten. Um, but it makes me wonder if, because it, 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 won't be enough. We will not be unified as a country just simply by stamping out grievances. <laughs> yeah. Like that's not a winning strategy. We have to have, what is the positive case or what we will be for. I don't know if that makes sense.
2: No, that does make sense. I, um, yeah, I, I, what comes to me is the, the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm. I think that that is something that I learned in school. I don't even know if they say the Pledge of Allegiance anymore.
3: I think one but, state's bringing it back, but, um, North Dakota, they brought
2: it back this week. Go, Indy, you do it. Um, but I could say, you know, that, that was something that, wasn't necessarily explained, but I knew we all did it. Mm. Or, um, the, the, what do you call the, the song?
3: The national anthem. The national
2: anthem. Like Star
3: Spangled Banner. There you go.
2: Yeah. You don't like that song. Yeah. But I knew that we all, I didn't like it until, you know, they told me the truth behind it. Um, you know, I knew that we all did it. And so, yeah, I, I, I also don't think that, um, we often reflect about it, at least during this time, we don't reflect on the things that actually unify us because so many of us haven't lived overseas or haven't gone overseas to understand what it is to actually be an other and to, to see how other countries unify together. So I don't know. Yeah.
3: I just think that there needs to be more conversation about this. Cause I've been thinking about, you know, we always say when people ask us, about our definition of unity. Some people have this, this understanding of unity. It it means like we never talk about our differences Mm -hmm. and that's not how we approach it. We say like any, any group of people can be unified over any topic, Mm -hmm. you know, like
2: I'm still trying to create the cake community. Yeah. The
3: love of cake.
2: Yes. So she made a cake last night. If you want to join the cake community, just let me know.
3: But I think that if Americans are going to have a sense of renewal, or patriotism, there has to be some unifying principles yes. to rally around it. I just don't hear anybody articulating that's going to that. be us. We
2: we gonna we gonna start a
3: well. Uh, we're not the else. American Patriot Ministry, but I just uh, it's just an observation. When you know, and you know, maybe this this big entity that we were talking to this week, there's more in the secular space. I mean, that'd be a great thing for th- maybe them to pick up. But somebody needs to but
2: begin see, like, to work I'm on that. I like Trimeris because. Let's see what it says. Secular unity and spiritual unity are incompatible. What do you think about that?
3: Um, it depends. It depends on what we're talking about. It depends on what we're talking about in spiritual unity. And it depends on what we're talking about in secular unity. I think there's a sense in which that Venn diagram, they can cross each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that in the Judeo-Christian tradition of the last 250 years, that's how it's been. It's been a Venn diagram where there's crossover. Um, to be an American is not like the Venn diagram isn't right on top of each mm-hmm. other. It's not the same as being an being American and being a Christian or not exactly the yeah. same, but there is some, some general values and crossover where I think that there could be shared, shared principles. Um, and I, I went over all of that in my teaching series, one nation under God. Um, but I, I just don't hear anybody talking about, you know, what, what are the American distinctives? What, it, what what does it really mean, in a positive sense, making the positive case for being an American? I just think we're in a, such a reactionary mode, and it it's it's exhausting. We need something. If if there's ever going to be a renewal, of um, e pluribus unum, of out of the many come one, we have to know what are those unifying principles. Mm-hmm. That out of the many come one. What is that? I just don't see anybody talking about that. Um, so that's that's just a thought, to put out there. All so, right. all right. Rakita says she loves cake.
2: Oh, she'll be yes. in the cake club with you. Please, it has to be <laughs> gluten-free cake, unfortunately. <laughs> but I'm telling you, we need we need a, a cake club, cake community.
3: All right, friends, next week, uh, why don't you tell them about the special show we have for next week?
2: Next week, we are having we're
3: going to burn down the internet next basically.
2: week. Basically. Next week, we're going to be talking about um, pregnancy resource centers, PRCs. And that'll be the fourth show in um, post-Roe v. Wade, just looking at different aspects of, you know, what does it mean post-Roe v. Wade? And so looking at pregnancy resource centers, are they beneficial? Do they offer confusion? What really happens, you know, in a pregnancy resource center? I have done a little bit of research on PRCs, and I have been astounded by what I have found. And I have a lot of questions. So you don't want to miss that show.
3: So it's going to be a very special guest. Uh, We got connected with through our friend Katie Faust. Mm -hmm. And if you thought Katie was fire, wait until...
2: Yes, yeah, she don't. She ain't. She ain't mixing no words. Um, but her name is Laura Clausen. She is a um woman who lives in Canada, and she started an organization called Choice for Two. And so that is going to be our show next week.
3: Yes. So, um, talking about PRCs, what are they? Best practices, um, and some surprising information uh, that I think uh, was surprising for us in our research so we will look forward to that we will see you then good night and
2: god bless good
4: night thanks
1: for listening to all the things be sure to subscribe to our website at all and find us on youtube facebook instagram or wherever you stream your podcasts be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.